So, here's the episode where Dax dies. I'm going to talk more about that at the end of this video. Let's talk about the episode first. Although, it's interesting that they had many, many, many rewrites of this episode. Because they just couldn't find a death that worked. Even the one that they finally pushed through was basically just the last version that they had. Because, uh, you know, they had a deadline. They had work to do. So they just kind of threw it in. Anyways. So we see the Gratitude Festival happening. That's nice. I'm going to kind of sound weird, because there's not a lot to analyze in this episode. It's a lot of brief, quick views of everyone. It's like a, here's where we are. You know, like a catching up kind of a mechanic. So, Odo and Kiros are still having, you know, still together. They've had their first real fight. Odo's still kind of hung up on regulations, but he doesn't really know how to properly deal with certain situations, like having an argument, so he's still just kind of struggling with that. He thought their relationship was ending because they had a fight. <laughs> They're having, uh, they, they discuss the medical issues with the nature of Jadzia Dex and Worf having a child. And the fact that they're kind of working through... Basically, this is something that I've actually talked about before and something I really like the idea of. I referenced Enterprise Season 4 many times in this thing. The idea that cross-species you know, children are possible, but a lot of that requires medical technology to get it there. That there are simply too many distinguishing problems between the different species that you can't just naturally have children. You need the medical science to get them there. And I kind of like that idea with... Uh, a Klingon and a Trill. A joined Trill, especially. We see the new orbital weapons platforms. I gotta wonder. Uh, forgive me for talking tactics for a second, because this episode certainly doesn't want to. But there's these orbital, orbital weapon platforms, and I find myself wondering, how cheap are those to build and design and set up and maintain compared to ships? Oh, sure, they take less people, because they're automated. But they say they have hundreds of these deployed around a single system, single planet, actually, around this moon, which is the thing that's powering them all. Now, the moon is very well defended, so that's nice. And the platforms themselves are super powerful, that's nice. But they're all being powered from the moon, which... Yeah, that That's just point of failure, is what that is, from an engineering perspective. I can forgive it because they were probably rushed in making this thing. But my point is, from a tactical, especially strategic perspective, you know what the purpose of a wall or a turret is? Because it's not to defend your base. It's to hold off the enemy long enough or hurt them hard enough so that when your actual mobile force shows up, it can deal with them. That's, that's very, very, very common tactical concept. That goes back to medieval eras. That goes back to hill forts, you know? The purpose of defensive emplacements is not to win with them. Not unless you, they're really, really good or you have an absolutely enormous amount of them. No, the purpose of them is to hold things off or to stall or to do damage until the actual defensive force, which is a mobile force, can actually do something about it, right? So that means these are being built in addition to ships, at least unless they really think a bunch of turrets are going to stop an invasion fleet. <laughs> That's not how that works. Point in fact, if they had been smart about this, they could have slowly picked their way through this entire force bit by bit. All they'd have to do is imagine... I need a 3D object here. Uh, imagine the Switch game. It's, it's on my desk. What do you want from me? It's still in the wrapping, even. Um, imagine this is the, 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 the swarm of orbital platforms, okay? So what you do is you have your fleet over here, 
and you have your biggest, heaviest ships up front, and they get in weapons range of only the most outermost edges of here, so that the sh the weapons platforms from within cannot shoot. So you're going to start taking some fire from them, but you're going to fire back and take out that outer edge. Then you rotate those ships back, so they can start getting repairs and get their shields back up. Rotate another seal the ships in, move in a few kilometers or however much, take out the next layer. I just came up with this off the top of my head. There are many ways around defensive emplacements. That's the point. And yet, I'm either led to believe that they are, again, making this alongside ships, or they are stupid enough to think that this is going to be enough by itself. I'd be willing to believe the latter. Damar isn't really known for his tactical genius, and Weyun, while he's an excellent administrator, is no tactician. So, oh, maybe? Then again, it's not like the combined Federation Romulan Klingon force is impressing me with its tactical acumen. Anyways, because what they do is they A-move into the field. Now you could say, well, they had to, because at the time when they started attacking, the weapons platforms were powered down and they were in a hurry. Okay, so what do they do when it powers back up? Leave and start doing something more intelligent? No, no, no. A-move. Not impressed. But the reason I bring up the cost thing is the only way this would really be feasible, especially for hundreds of things for one planet, is if these are massively cheaper to make than actual ships. And I'm not sure they are, given the capacities they talk about for these things. Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> so then we have Dukat shows up. Yay! Dukat and Wayun immediately get into it. What I've always loved is Dukat always has a rejoinder. He, this is probably partially down to his force of personality, but Dukat always treats Wayun as an equal. Or, or to be more accurate, he always insists on being treated as an equal to Wayun. Damar doesn't. Damar is always under Wayun. So, it's interesting to see that per parallel, especially in dynamic, when we see all three of them on screen at the same time. And then, of course, Damar, when he reaches out to Dukat, his first reaction is to be defensive as we saw back in Statistical Probabilities. I keep bringing that episode up. It's he, He's still feeling bad about killing Zial, as he should. So, we see something interesting in this, though. We see that the enemy forces are not unified. Now, we've suspected this, and it's been hinted at several times, but this is showing it outright. This is important. Because the next thing we see is that we're not unified either, mostly across the Romulan and the Klingon side of things. The Greens and the Reds don't really like each other. Go figure. I wonder if they did that on purpose. <laughs> Think about it. Red, green. Anyways. <clears throat> so, uh, we skip forward a bit. Uh, we see a musical number. Okay. Moving on. Uh, Jake decides he's going along to report for the war. That's continuing to be a thing. That's going to pay off later in Season 7. The prophets pop in and say, don't go. Now, that's interesting. One of the intended writer threads, one of the intended plot threads here, is that the prophecy is unfulfilled. That they had lined out a th series of events, and the reckoning was supposed to happen, and the good guys were supposed to win, the power race were supposed to go away, and because that didn't, didn't happen, the idea is, well, now what? I mean, that was the plan, that was the goal. And on the one hand, that's like an appealing concept for a writer. But on the other hand, the prophets don't have a concept of time, which means they've already seen all this and how it will go, did go, has gone. So that makes a lot less sense. When all time is the same to you, it's a lot easier to write a prophecy. <laughs> Especially since, as per two other things, one related to Kai Wynn and one related to Cisco, it's pretty clear that, no, they did actually have a plan for this. So I don't buy that concept. Anyways, <clears throat> uh, look at my notes. 
the Jem'Hadar decide to be smart, tactically. I know that sounds strange. They literally kamikaze ram larger Klingon ships, which makes sense. Because the Jem'Hadar are looking at this from a numbers game. Pure math. If I kill five of my soldiers to kill a hundred of yours, I am winning is the overall perspective here. In addition to the fact that they're buying time for the weapons platforms to actually get engaged. So, yeah, smart, kind of, very inhuman, but I mean, you don't need to consider the lives of your crew when you're Jem'Hadar. It's one of those little advantages when you don't need to consider them as people. The battle goes badly. Of course it does. Meanwhile, uh, Damar is just sneering at the idea, and he's and Wei-Yun is like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I buy this whole prophets, parates, gods, things. It sounds ridiculous. And Demar's like, Demar, this is funny. Because this goes back to what I mentioned earlier. Demar, for one of the only times, probably the first time in the entire show, starts to treat himself as if he is an equal to Wayun. And, and I mean just in a simple social way. You know, Wayun's like, oh, it sounds ridiculous. And Demar's like, yeah, exactly. It's just like your founders. And Wayun goes from slightly jocular to cold, deadly serious within a millisecond and just glares at him. And that's different. What do you mean? The founders are gods. Right, right. Whoops. <laughs> it's a nice scene. Uh, the battle goes badly. And then Dax... Uh, goes through a really unpleasant massage and gets thrown to the ground. Fun little fact, for quite a while, everyone I talked to who watched this episode didn't know she died at first because of how unclear the death is. <laughs> Later, when they go back, when Julian calls them and they go to the medical bay, it's more clear that, yeah, okay. And then they have the frickin' coffin, yeah, okay. But at the time, it's like, <laughs> okay. We've seen stuns do less than that. Anywho. <clears throat> so... I haven't said much about Ducat because I have very little to say about him. This is officially Pa Ducat. He is, in fact, specifically in uh, possessed by, what was it, Kazumoja or whatever it was, uh, is voiced by name, and then goes into and corrupts and destroys all the orbs, somehow, which then causes something to happen with the wormhole, somehow. They're pretty vague about a lot of this stuff. I know, I know, I get it spiritual, but it, this is Star Trek. All of these things do have... Chroniton radiation generated by a device affects these spiritual beings. I'm sorry, there's a concrete reality under this. So, it'd be nice to have some explanations. We'll actually talk more about that next week. When we get to Season 7. But when the wormhole goes... Pop, uh, it cuts over to Cisco, who naturally has an Obi-Wan moment. Kira gets involved and takes command instead of Worf. Wait, that makes no sense at all. In fact, I'm not even sure why Kira's on this mission. She's second in charge of the station. Worf is in charge of the Defiant. I mean, I know they, they said he would never have his command again. Maybe that's really reflected here? I don't know. And they go ahead and decide to technology their way to a solution. Now, this right here, this is probably the most Voyager moment uh, in late DS9. And I suppose I do mean that as an insult. Sorry. Um, see, here's the thing. <clears throat> you ever see uh, the movie Generations? It's Star Trek Seven, basically. Uh, there's a bit in that episode, in that episode, <laughs> in that movie, where the Enterprise D loses a battle to a old Burrell Klingon bird of prey, who has the ability to bypass their shields. 
Now, if you know me, you know I've actually brought up this exact point multiple times because it's a key and critical point in Star Trek writing because it's garbage. What it is, is this, this the Galaxy-class heavy cruiser um, is completely and utterly overwhelmed and loses effortlessly to a bird that is playing with them because they happen to have lost their shields and nothing else. It's worth noting that if the... the Oh god, I can't think of the Duras. If the Duras sisters had been smart, they would have targeted the bridge immediately with that first photon. That might have actually bought them a victory, although it would have killed a lot of the main characters, so I see why they can't do that. Maybe if they targeted the nacelles, I could see that. They do neither. In spite of this overwhelming disparity in power, they managed to bring down the Enterprise D. And the only reason the Enterprise D wins back is because of bullcrap. They, they, they bounce a whatchafig beam onto a whatchafig, which would only work with an older ship with an out-of-date cloak, forcing them to cloak so they can hit them with one torpedo, killing them. They tech their way to solution, or technobabble, to put it bluntly. And that is unacceptable. Now, I have spoken many times about how I am not a fan of technobabble as it is applied, because technobabble as it is applied is nonsense. It's, it's something that you don't have to write for. Because you don't have to think about it. You just come up with something. Okay, in order to defeat the enemy, we need to tech. Period. And that's all you have to write as a writer. And that's lazy. And that's stupid. You know what's not stupid? Thinking your way through the situation. Or around the situation. Or trying to be more clever. Or trying to, to get one up. Or basically in any way actually earning a victory. One of the questions I get often, forgive me for hammering this point in, but this actually pisses me off, and this is a good time to talk about this. One of the points, one of the questions I'm asked semi-frequently is, who would win blank versus blank? And a common one is Star Trek versus Star Wars in some manner or another. Now here's the thing. Star Wars is so much overwhelmingly stronger than Star Trek from a military perspective. Probably because it's called Star Wars for a frickin' reason. One ISD could probably wreck an entire fleet of Federation ships, except, except, <laughs> the problem is Star Trek tends to tech-tech their way through situations. So, what would happen is the ISD would, would jump in and just start abstractly obliterating the fleet, and then they'd be like, what do we do? And rather than thinking around it, or outmaneuvering it, or trying to use any kind of any cleverness or intellectual design, or even just straight out out-muscling their way through it. No. No no grand sacrifice, no clever plan. Instead, what they would do is they would say, okay, got it. We're going to bounce the main the graviton beam off the main deflector dish. And they would do that to somehow disable the ISD's shields for only a fraction of a second, and then they would send the one torpedo which would destroy the whole ship or something. Right? You know how I know this? <laughs> because that's exactly what they tried to do to the Jem'Hadar Dreadnought not too long ago. You remember that? <sighs> and that's irritating. It's irritating because it's dismissive and it's insulting. There's no clever, interesting, well-done writing here. It is lazy. Now, one of the most common counter-arguments I hear to this is Look, they don't, they're not military strategists. They don't need to be writing excellent military strategy. You're right, they don't. So they have some options. One, don't make their main story set in the middle of a war. Easy enough. Two, actually bring in real strategic consultants. 
As I've talked about many, many times, there are a score of people whose entire job is to be experts and consultants on a specific thing so that someone can call them in to serve as a consultant on that thing. That's true for game designers, it's true for movies, it's true for television, it's true for books. All of these people, you can call in experts and say, help me design this. Okay, here's the starting fleet, here's the enemy fleet, help me figure out how this battle goes. And then you write it. You can also just be clever yourself if you choose to do so. Now, I know that's time and effort, and I know that that's not always going to be a thing, because eventually you're going to run out of juice, right? So I understand that. But my point is there are options available here to do this. There's also the final option. Have it off, have it off camera. Make it happen off camera. Now, that's not very satisfying, because especially for a, a season closer like this, where you want to have the big battle... But if you can't come up with anything better than I'm going to technobabble away to force their remote-controlled uh, uh, orbital platforms to start attacking their own power source, that's your solution. <laughs> this isn't even the worst solution, of course. This isn't the worst example of technobabble I've seen. But it might be one of the worst examples I've seen in Deep Space Nine, especially for a moment like this, which is part of why I'm ha hammering this point so hard here. Anyways, battle's over, and a message comes in from Julian. Now, that's the first sign something's wrong. You notice Kira's face when she hears that, like, oh, God. Because she just saw her, her emissary wander off in pain and disorientation. Yeah. We cut down to Julian. Now, I have some complaints about this episode, but I just want to say the last part here is actually really powerful. Because they, they, they manage a good death for, for Terry Farrell, for, for Dax. Um, it turns out that at length they were able to save the symbiote. Barely. So in some manner or another, Dax will continue on. It's a small comfort. Because Jodzia Dax, the entity of Jodzia Dax, is dead. Dax may keep going. And, you know, Esri. But Jodzia Dax is gone. It is still a loss. Funny note. Obviously, Terry Farrell didn't really want to leave. I'm going to talk about that last. I already talked about it. Um, but if you pay very close attention, even on the DVDs, uh, while Terry Farrell is lying there, you can see that she had actually been crying. The actual tear lines are visible coming out of her eyes and the side of her face. You have to look for it, but they're there. I admittedly wouldn't have noticed that if she didn't call it out herself. She mentioned in an interview that she was crying during that scene. Because she didn't want to go. Before I move forward with the Terry Farrell thing, Worf says something in Klingon. I got the translation here. Only Kronos endures. All we can hope for is a glorious death. Only Kronos endures. In death, there is victory and honor. And that's what he says as she dies. So Cisco takes... Cisco has a really, really great moment where he just... You can tell the man's shattered. He's just... <laughs> his best friend's gone, and he has utterly failed as the emissary. It is worth noting that if he'd stayed behind... Admiral Ross pushes him on this point. I need you to be on the ship, or I need you to be the emissary. Cisco could have stayed behind, and as horrible as this sound, he might have not only prevented the loss of the wormhole, but the loss of Dax. But he chose to go to do his duty as a captain, and uh, he paid for that. That's interesting. See, I've talked before about the difference between blind faith and specific faith. 
Cisco does not have blind faith. He has specific faith. He has faith that has been built up over years of interactions with the prophets and with the Bajorans. He has faith because they have proven themselves to him. This makes his leaving all the more damning. You will notice he thinks about it for a while. He takes several, several long seconds to think about it before he finally decides, okay, I'll be on the Defiant. Probably because he knew that he'd be abandoning his career if he decided to stay behind and refuse a direct admiral order from his admiral. But he made the wrong call. Congratulations. <sighs> Fun, isn't it? But of course, the real reason, the only reason that Terry Farrell, excuse me, that Jadzia Dax died was because Terry Farrell was leaving the show. Uh, I don't want to talk about this because this is upsetting and it sucks. And there's nothing we can do about it now. It's done. Over. It's over. Done. Gone. I've talked about this kind of thing multiple times. I brought it up in Season 4 to 5 of Babylon 5. Um, I've brought it up in Season 1, TNG, with Denise Crosby. I brought it up in Season 2 of TNG with Gates McFadden. And I brought it up in Season 3 of Voyager with uh, Jennifer Lyne, or Lean. I can never remember how to pronounce her name. In all of these cases, it's always a struggle. I know, nobody cares. It's their private matter. They can stay private about it if they want to. But in many of these cases, the only one that was really definitive was Denise Crosby. That was very open and overt. She was unhappy with what she was doing. They were misusing her as a character. She bowed out. End of story. In every other case I just mentioned, it's kind of a decide what you'd like from the few facts that we have. And even the facts we have are just people saying things. In the What You Left Behind documentary, there's this wonderful bit and by wonderful, I mean horrible, where Michael Dorn says the only thing we know is what they choose to tell us. The only one, they're the ones who are the only ones who actually know what happened. And that is damned true. And as I've talked about many times, there's this thing in Hollywood that's been there for years and years and years, decades at this point, many decades, since before I was born, about the concept that you just stay quiet about these sort of things. You just don't talk about it. Now, I want to share a story with you. Before I even started this series, that would have been, what, two years ago now? Three years ago? It was a while ago. I think it had to have been about two years ago, given the timing. Let's see, when did this come out? June of 2016. So, yeah, it would have been a little over two years ago. By, so, before I started doing this, one of the first things I did was I did some digging on why did Terry Farrell leave? Because I didn't have a solid answer to that. In fact, I had no answer whatsoever. The only things were a couple of vague references in the Deep Space Nine companion guide, and that was it. So, I did some digging. It's my job, right? I came across a book. That book is called The 50-Year Mission, The Complete, Uncensored, Unauthorized Oral History of Star Trek The First 25 Years, which came out on June 28th, 2016. Now, I don't remember how soon after this. I think this, was, I, I, this book had been out for a few months when I went digging. I was like, okay... I grabbed a digital copy of it, which I still have some shots of here. Now, I just, I'm just saying this because I took all of this stuff like two and a half to three years ago. I had all of this information. I've had this stuff saved and ready to go for a long time for this episode because I always knew this is where I was going to talk about this. Then, weirdly enough, what you left behind or what we left behind comes out. 
which from my perspective came out last month. That's how recent this is compared to when I'm recording these. Um, or last month of the month before. It's very, I'm pretty sure it's last month. I can double check that. It doesn't matter. Point being, I watched it, of course. Some interesting info. Not Nothing really new there. You know, some season eight stuff, which I'll talk about at the very end. Uh, and, you know, a few other tidbits. But for the most part, it was nothing new. But what was really interesting is there's a section just about Terry Farrell, who was obviously emotionally distraught, just talking to the rest of the crew and talking to Iris Stephen Bear, like, what the hell? Now, that was interesting to me, because at first I thought they were going to reveal more about what was happening. And we did get some insight from the rest of the cast and crew. This is consistent with what we've already seen in every interview and every fan thing and every convention since then. The, the cast and crew have been very embracing of Terry Farrell. And the very clear distinction is they didn't want her to go. As Ira Stephen Bear says in a quote I'm going to quote for you in just a minute here, we were writing stories for you. We, we, we were going somewhere with you. We just, the, the, the Wharf relationship thing was going great. Why would we want you to leave the show? So I'm going to start sharing some quotes from you from the book I just mentioned. Terry Farrell, and I quote, The problems with my leaving were with Rick Berman. Now, I could just stop there. I could. In my opinion, he's just very misogynistic. He'd comment on your bra size not being very voluptuous. His secretary had a 36C or something like that. And he would say something like, well, just you're just like flat. Look at Christine over there. She has the perfect breasts right there. That's the kind of conversation he would have right in front of you. I had to have fittings for Dax to have larger breasts. This is actually a really common thing in Star Trek. In fact, he tried to make Kate Mulgrew do the same thing over at Voyager. I think it was a double D or something. I went to see a woman who fits bras for once who needs mastectomies. I, I, uh, mast, mast, mastectomy, excuse me. I think I'm still saying that wrong. I had to have that fitting, and then I had to go into this office. Michael Pillar didn't care about those things, so he wasn't there when you were having these crazy fittings with Rick Berman criticizing your hair or how big your breasts were or weren't. That stuff was so intense, especially the first couple of years. I started modeling when I was 17, so I was used to comments like that, but it was a different experience for me to be around normal, respectful people, and he's my boss. So, come about season five is when they were doing contract negotiations for season seven. So, <clears throat> Continuing, this is a quote from Terry Farrell again, basically he was trying to bully me into saying yes. He was convinced that my cards were going to fold and I was going to sign up. He had another producer come up to me and say, if you weren't here, you know you'd be working at Kmart. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? I had a career before this. Why the hell would I be working at Kmart? Who are you? Just to be jerky, he'd call me in my trailer. Have you been thinking about it yet? Are you going to sign? Like right before I had a scene, it was that kind of a thing. Rick Berman said I was hardballing him, and I was like, I'm not. I just want to have a conversation. You're giving me a take-it-or-leave-it offer, and I'm not okay with that. So I finally did have a conversation with him and asked to cut down my number of episodes or just let me out. Now, I'm going to share a little bit of additional side information, which I can't quote, I'm, I'm afraid. In fact, this is from memory, and I don't have a source. I just want to make that very clear when I'm covering this kind of a thing. However... One of the things that has been stated in conventions is that Terry Farrell was trying to stretch out in her career and maybe do movies. Now, this is a normal thing. If you're paying attention, um, the gentleman who plays O'Brien, we're just going to say it that way, is someone who had a similar deal. In fact, he actually specifically had an agreement with Rick Berman saying, yes, you can go do movies as long as you keep doing your job on the show. And that was basically that. No problems. The inference here is that Terry Farrell wanted a similar deal with Rick Berman and with the studio, and Rick Berman said, nope, and tried to hardball her into signing on for the full episodes for, for DS9. Now, this is a quote from Rick Berman. 
To say that this woman was let go is absolutely ridiculous. She was not fired. She requested to not be in all the episodes. She wanted to be a recurring character. You can't be in a situation on our shows where somebody is just going to do 7 out of 13. I love that people, including some of these actors, love to think that I had all this power. The studio basically said, no way. She's a regular character, and she does all 26 episodes or nothing. I think there was a big battle with her attorneys or agents with the studio. I don't remember what this had to do with money or had to do with her refusal to be in every episode, but she ended up departing. It certainly was not my choice. It was the loss of a character, and it was difficult for us. I've heard stories of her at conventions blaming me and saying I had something to do with her leaving, which could not be farther from the truth. Brian and I talk about this all the time. You tend to focus on the nasty things people say about you, and I know that's been a lot of animosity on the Internet or at conventions that are 100% untrue, so it's painful to read stuff like that. Now I'm going to say something really unusual here. I kind of think Rick Berman's telling the truth here. Hear me out. Hear me out. <laughs> I, as I, I'll, I'm going to keep reading. I've got more stuff to share here. But what we see is if we pay attention very carefully to the specific things he say, he says she was not fired. She requested not be in all the episodes. She wanted to be a recurring character. All of that's true. Terry Farrell quit. Now, she was pushed into quitting by abuse and harassment, but she wasn't fired. So that's a true statement. Uh, she wanted to be a recurring character. She was trying to pull back on her role. She was trying to push for other things. She ended up getting into Becker, I think, right after this. So, you know. Um, the studio, uh, I love that, so back to Rick Berman's comment, I love that people, including some of these actors, love to think I had all this power. The studio basically said, no way. And that's also true. While Rick Berman was a studio executive, he was one of them. And if you ever hear me say the executives, I'm specifically referring to the large group of people, of which there's like 10, who actually make these decisions when it comes to these kind of things. Now, Rick Berman was one of those people and would be involved in that decision making. But it is fair to say that he was not unilaterally responsible for deciding to give her this all-or-nothing attitude. However... It is almost unquestionable that Rick Berman did, in fact, harass her, just to put it simply and bluntly, on the, on the show. Whether in a legal matter or in a, in a non-legal matter, I don't care. The point being, he abused her in a verbal manner, as far as I'm concerned. And what's interesting is, you might be thinking, well, hang on, Laura. Are you just casting shade? There are repeated comments about Rick Berman showing this kind of <sighs> sexist behavior. On TNG, on Voyager, on Enterprise, and on Deep Space Nine. This is a recurring pattern. We already have comments from Kate Mulgrew, from Jerry Taylor, or no, from Jerry Ryan, excuse me, I always get their names confused. From Jerry Ryan, from Kate Mulgrew, from Terry Farrell, and from Jolene Blaylock. And I hope I'm saying her name right on that, because I don't say it that often. All of them have all said the same thing, specifically about Rick Berman. It's also worth noting that any time this is brought up, the cast and crew, the actual producers, the actual people involved in making the show, all firmly back the actors in question, and Farrell in particular. In fact, I have another quote here, which I'd like to share, if you don't mind, from Ira Stephen Bear. And I quote, let's put it this way, if I'd known what was going on, I would have stopped it. There's no doubt in my mind, because that opened a whole can of worms, and I learned more than I wanted to know about what was happening under my nose and behind my back of things that were going on. I would have walked over to the Cooper building, and in one conversation, I would have stopped that from happening. But everyone chose not to tell me for various reasons, including, as I found out, to protect me from having to get in someone's face, and that would, what that would mean for my position and stuff like that. And I said that was all ridiculous. To quote Hans Beimler, 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 Ira was really upset when he found out, because it happened on his watch, and he wouldn't tolerate that kind of stuff. 
Next quote, Terry Farrell. When I told Ira what happened years later, I think he almost projectile vomited. I was like, we were writing for you. How could you think we didn't like you? Now pay attention to this. But I thought he was thinking whatever Rick Berman was thinking. I thought they were all thinking the same thing. Rick Berman's representing them, right? But Rick Berman, you don't feel like anyone else could tell him anything. That's the number one guy. It begins and ends with him. So I didn't reach out to Ira because I didn't even occur to me we'd have a different opinion than Rick. When Ira found out, he was like, you would have still been recurring? I was like, yeah, I would have been at 13 shows. I wasn't starring. Avery starred. So did Nana. I was number five. There's no harm to me recurring. But Ira had no idea about the situation, and I didn't know I could have talked to him about it at the time. And now we see a larger picture being developed here. <laughs> in other words, what we're seeing here is a situation in which... <sighs> she says Rick Berman constantly. And I don't want to say that he is not to blame here, because I do think he shares in this blame. But the point being, Rick Berman is, before anything else, a studio executive. And he acts like that. And that means if he has to be a mouthpiece for the, for the decision of the executives, then he will be. That's not a defense. It's a statement of fact. That means that he tended to have this general air of authority going about him, which he did reportedly several times. That makes sense. He was, in many ways the guy steering Star Trek. Like, Star Trek was his baby. He was the executive in charge of Star Trek. So that makes sense. It also makes an unfortunately large amount of sense that someone like Terry Farrell, who I remind you, this is her first really big acting gig. Remember how I mentioned recently how much, been act how much she's grown as an actress throughout the last six years? What we see here is that she is someone who literally did not understand the dynamic and complexity of how a TV show was made. And that's no blame. No blame. Because I know exactly what that feels like. It never even occurred to me to reach out to you. It never even, I never even thought that you would be on my side. I assumed everyone was on that side. Right? How many of you have ever been in a situation like that? I have. Not exactly like this, but I have been in a situation where Bob told me something, and I just assumed that was the law, and that was... That was it. Nothing else past that. And I was wrong. I should have talked to people about that. But that's not on Terry. Because the moment it became clear that she was upset about this, someone should have reached out to her. There's a, there's a bit, um, oh god, what's his name? What's his name? There's another executive who actually was quoted on this. This actually came up in, uh, What We Leave Behind, where he mentioned that she came into his office one time just crying, sobbing, because she had just been through what she called the final straw that broke her back, which is another comment about her boob size or whatever. And that <laughs> that's the kind of thing where someone should have reached out to her and said, what the hell is going on? In case you're paying attention, yeah, I'm saying that everyone's to blame here to some extent or another. Biggest sunk chunk of the blame? Rick Berman easily. Ignoring the fact that the executives were playing hardball regardless of him, the fact is he was the one who was mistreating her as an individual. Biggest blame, Rick Berman. Second biggest blame, the executives. What a frickin' shock. Third biggest blame, that's tricky, but I'm gonna give that to Ira Stephen Bear. To be completely blunt, whatever happens on your ship is your job. You are supposed to know what's happening on your ship. You should have figured this out. You should have looked into this. I know you're busy. I don't care. And the final minuscule amount of blame goes to Terry Farrell herself for... <sighs> you know what? I'm not even sure I agree with that sense. Now that I'm saying it out loud, 
You know what? I take that back. I'm not going to give her any blame. I don't think she, I don't think she deserves it. I know exactly what it feels like to be in that situation. Except for, well, I'd like to say except for the sexual harassment, but I've actually been sexually harassed in my life. Would you believe that? It's a long time ago. I don't talk about it much. It's not a big deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but it's it's a long time ago. But uh, yeah, no. I don't give any blame to Terry Farrell. I'm going to keep reading these. i got a couple more quotes. Rick Berman. <clears throat> Terry and I got along perfectly, and for some reason she departed. Years after she departed, she started saying I had something to do with her departure, which I can tell you is absolutely untrue. I may have been on the side of refusing to give her 7 out of 13, but you can't be at a far-off part of the galaxy and just suddenly not show up for half the episodes because you want to do a movie or you want to be with your family. It just doesn't work. <laughs> So that's a, a straight-up lie. Given the repeated pattern of Rick Berman being a misogynistic pig, uh, I'm pretty will willing to say that he and her getting along perfectly was, was garbage and stupid. The next thing I want to point out is he says, I may have been on the side of refusing to over 7 out of 13, but you can't be at a far-off part of the galaxy and suddenly not show up for half of those because you want to do a movie. Except, as I just mentioned, he already had deals like that with multiple other actors who were actively doing that kind of thing. Now, it's funny to note that this actually, something very similar to this actually came up once before with Will Wheaton back in, that would have been season four of TNG. And that was ultimately why Will Wheaton ended up leaving the cast of TNG. <laughs> that was also Rick Berman, by the way. Uh, Iris Stephen Bear. It could have been handled, but you know what? I did not know. And no one told me until many years later, and that is unfortunate. Other people kept things to themselves, and it went beyond just the actresses. It happened to support staff, too. That's how evil flourishes. <laughs> when people don't stand up to it, that's the deal. If you don't, they just get away with it. I just want you to know that Ira Stephen Bear just straight up called Rick Berman evil. <laughs> um... And one last quote from Terry Farrell. I didn't know I would get the sitcom Becker. That was it, Becker, right away. Nobody knew about that. That was just freaking lucky, and it was the same lot. I mean, it was easy for me, but it could have been on CBS lot, and it wouldn't have seemed so fortunate. It really gave people this false idea that Paramount had, was saving me, or Paramount moved me to Becker on purpose, but none of that happened, and I agree with her on that one. That's just show business. <sighs> I, could, I could share a lot of other stories to help establish the point here. But I think I've made this point very, very clear. Um, based on everything that we see and know, yeah, this was not a good departure. And if I could be completely blunt, it shouldn't have happened. Someone like Rick Berman should have been slapped and then punched and then punched another time. One more time for good measure. Where's the pillow? Ugh. And then they should have actually reached out to Tara Farrell and been like, No! Look! We got you! It's okay! Can I share a shot side story? There's this one time where Ian McKellen was uh, acting for The Hobbit. First part. Uh, Unexpected Journey or whatever. You know, part one of three. And Ian McKellen had a bit of a breakdown because he was so stressed and so strained by acting against the green screen effect. He, he just he felt, is this, is this it? Is this the end of my career? Like, he was having a legitimate, I'm going to lose my career because I can't do this kind of a breakdown. You know what happened? The cast and crew reached out to him, embraced him, literally giving him hugs, giving him a gift basket. Like, look, we got you. We got you. It's okay. We're going to make it through this. That's what should have happened to Terry Farrell. And it didn't. And that's why I say there's blame to go around. 
I, we can't just lay this all on Rick Berman. He's the main precipitant for being a disgusting pig. But there is other blame to go around there. Now, it is probably worth noting that all of that is conjecture, based on what we do know. This is why I've been trying to recite, cite my sources as we go through this, because I wanted to give an explanation for why I've come to the conclusion that I've come to. I tend to treat these things like essays sometimes. You ever do those? Back in college, you know? Uh, anyways. <sighs> I have a headache. <clears throat> I don't know what else to say here. So I guess I'll look forward to the comment section. Oh, that's going to suck. <laughs> uh, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. We made it. We made it to the end of Season 6. One more to go, guys. I'll see you next time.